From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week we're sharing a highlight from this year's Rendezvous with French Cinema, our annual celebration of the variety and vitality of contemporary French filmmaking. The series opened last Thursday and continues through March 10th. Renowned novelist and poet Russell Banks serves as the festival's American ambassador this year. And last weekend, he joined filmmaker Paul Schrader for a live discussion to reflect on French cinema and culture, as well as the process of adapting literature to the screen. Let's go now to their conversation. Want me to go in the middle? First of all, I would like to say thank you, Russell Banks and Paul Schrader, to be with us. Uh, we wanted to organize uh, this discussion, this conversation. It is not really a masterclass. It's more like a discussion between, as you said, two legends. And also because we like to hear artists discussing together. But first of all, among the numerous themes that we evocate uh, together, I'm sure we are going to talk about uh, the way you adapt liter- literature into script and into cinema, the links you do uh, between cinema and, and the, the, the world of literature. Maybe also we will talk about uh, the way you consider France maybe as a source of inspiration, maybe or maybe not, I don't know. <laughs> but first of all, I would like to have a word for Bertrand Tavernier, who wanted to be with us and he couldn't come, unfortunately. And I know you are working now, Russell Banks, with him on a script. And you told me a few days ago that Bertrand Tavernier told you that the way he does the script, he does his way to, to write script, is not at all the way you do in Hollywood. We don't do that way. This is what he said. So maybe to introduce the first question would be so, do you think there is a main difference between a French scriptwriter and an American scriptwriter, as you both of you? Well, I don't have vast experience. <laughs> uh, the only experience I have working with a French uh, director-writer is with the Bertrand, and uh, and uh, we began. Uh, it's an adaptation of a short story of mine, and uh, and he wanted to make it. It's set in the United States in Miami primarily, and uh, he wanted to make it an American film with American actors and so on. He needed me to co-write it with him. And, uh, and he sat me down in Paris and, and, and said, um, I don't do it the way they do it in, in Hollywood. And I said, well, I don't know the way they do it in Hollywood, but how do you do it? How did he imagine they do it in Hollywood? The three-act three uh, screenplay fitting a, a very clear and, and de- predefined template um, a treatment that went from beginning to end before you. He said, I like to write one scene at a time and get it right and that it will tell me what the next scene will be and then I'll write that one and then it will tell me what yeah, the I, next scene. I wouldn't scene. work that way, but I mean, I know the point. I, well, I did a film in Romania a couple of years ago and I was talking to the cinematographer. Uh, he was one of the, the gods of new Romanian cinema. And he, he had agreed to do my film, and then he finally backed out. And he said, because um, I said, what, what I like about Romanian films at that time, new Romanian films, is you never know what's going to happen, whether the movie's going to end now or keep going. 
and in American films, you can feel the arc. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that is somewhat what you're talking about now. Yeah, and this was uh, the fact that it was a short story too made it more interesting because we had to expand a ten-page story into a two-hour film, uh, rather than shrinking or, or, or eviscerating a novel to make a two-hour film. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think one of the most important developments for uh, storytellers is, of course, uh, long form now because we were dying about five years ago from just this disease, the, the mechanics of the three-act structure. It was felt like these old, rusty, clunky old gears. It was like the Lionsgate logo. You could just hear You could hear the roller coaster going up, 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 up. You know, <laughs> you could hear all the gears working. And um, what uh, Longform did is just freed you from the gears. And right. you could put the, uh, the high point of a scene in the middle of an episode. Uh, in fact, they liked it better that way. You could digress. You could sort of wander off into a minor character for an hour or two. And that has made uh, writing so much better because we were imprisoned by this dreadful man. Well, what's his name? McKee, Robert McKee. Uh, you know, with this dreadful notion that um, you can figure it out. You know, well, some stories are three acts. That's because we tend to think in a past, present, future, so we tend to think in threes. Uh, but uh, some are five acts, some are one act, yeah. you know. And a story will tell you how many acts it That's is. Right. Uh, and, and uh but uh, that McKee thing is probably one of the worst things that, uh, I, you know, if you teach screenwriting, which I do from time to time, you have to, part of it has to be unteaching that book. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, can, can you tell us, Mr. Paul Schroeder, how did you work together the first time you've met and the first time maybe you've read um, the novels of Russell Banks. How did you work together then? Do you remember, Paul, uh, when you called me and, and we had finally agreed that uh, you, you would uh, buy the rights to Affliction, um, then you said, now, um, I want you to write the screenplay. And, and I said, you got to be kidding. Um, you're the best screenwriter in America. Why do you want me to write the screenplay? And you said, because you'll work cheaper than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't remember. Then that. I said, "No, I won't." <laughs> what do you get? I'm going to get that much too. <laughs> and then you wrote it. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it was written on spec, so I wasn't getting anything. Uh, but I mean, that book you know, grabbed me. Um, and you know, but the the thing about an adaptation, an adaptation is not you becoming the vehicle for the author of the novel. It's you finding your story within that novel and you pushing it through uh, so that um, you know, the ultimate satisfaction of writing a good adaptation is that the author is satisfied, maybe not happy, but satisfied, <laughs> but you feel that you've found something that means something to you too. And often when you read a book, there are multiple screenplays inside that book. And you have to find the one that really means something to you. And one of the reasons that so many adaptations go awry is because the writers are now getting instructions as to what is important and what isn't. 
and therefore you're asking the writer to be nothing but a technician. Uh, so, but in uh, the case of Affliction, it was a very easy adaptation. Uh, it just opened itself up for adaptation. The, the length was right, the voice was right, um, and. Uh, well, it's a very subjective, a very subjective narrative. I mean, it's it's told from the point of view of a minor character, and so it, it's internal in that sense. It wasn't a really highly visual story. Yeah, I mean, I I just I, I remember it not being. Uh, a, a difficult task. Um, I, I um, outline. I, here's how I work. I believe that screenwriting is part of the oral tradition, not part of the literary one. Screenwriting, in fact, is not literature. It's just me telling you a story. You know, we went we went hunting and a dog got sick and the bird got away. That's a screenplay. So, I start telling the story, and every time I tell it, I re-outline it, and I. Tell it again and re-outline it. And you tell it to anybody who wants some coffee or I'll buy you a drink. Let me tell you a story. Okay, these two men are sitting there at Ellen uh, Burton Center. Uh, one of them is a famous author, and the other has a heart condition, and he doesn't. He thinks he's going to die, but he's trying to hang on. Okay, boom! I started a story. Here we go. Um, and and, and just, you make it up, and then you. Uh, re-outline it, tell it again, re-outline it. And every time you tell it, you know, you look at the per person's eyes. You don't care what they think. But what you do care is you have them. And if I have you, I have you. I know it. And if I don't have you, I can see it in your posture. I can see it in your eyes. Mm -hmm. And I've got to do something to get you back, you know. And all of a sudden, a red convertible pulls up with two huge black guys in purple suits, and they get out with guns. Bingo! I got your back. <laughs> what am I going to do with, with those two uh, linebackers? I don't know yet, but I, I know I got you. Yeah. <laughs> now I got to deal with these linebackers. And so that's how you do it. And finally, when you get to the point where you can tell somebody a story for 45 minutes and hold their interest, you have a movie. And then you can write it. And so for me, the major work in writing a screenplay is oral. Uh, just telling and telling, outlining and outlining. And then the writing period usually is three to four weeks because it's all up here in your head anyway. And I'll just finish this by saying this is a, two things happen if you tell your story enough. One of two things. And they're both good things. One is the story dies on you. And it just dies. You can feel it die. Well, that's a good thing because you don't have to waste six months writing a script that nobody wants to see. <laughs> <laughs> or if the, the story gets sick of being told and says, enough already. I want to be in print now. I want to go. And then, of course, you go like lightning. So, and when I teach screenwriting, I actually teach that method. Now, that's not um, what I think Bertrand is talking about either. No, no, not at all. When the first time I had to write a, uh, you just reminded me of something, uh, a screenplay. Um, it was for an adaptation of one of my own books. And I had never written one before, and I had barely even read one before. And I didn't know uh, how to budget my time, how much time I was going to have to give up uh, from my other writing, my real writing as I think of it. And, um, and so I, I call, I happen to know him well enough to call Elmore Leonard and, 
and I said, "How long? How long should I budget uh, for writing a screenplay?" And, and he and he said, eh, "If you're doing it longer than six weeks, you're doing it wrong." <laughs> he said, "But don't tell them that. <laughs> Just go ahead and do it." So I budgeted six weeks, and that was. Yeah. And okay. regarding, I don't know if we can, you can you can talk about method. You you use the, this word method, but regarding your work, Russell Banks, what is the, according to you the main thing to avoid when you are adapting? Well, I don't know about adapting. I, I wanted to respond to one yeah. thing he said about yeah. telling and retelling and retelling. For a novelist, for a fiction writer, certainly, and I think as well a short story writer, um, it's important not to tell the story. Um, advice from Hemingway on down and from every fiction writer is don't talk your story out and you won't then you won't write it and and also you will never really discover very much in the process of telling your story so I I'll work three years on a novel and I won't even tell my wife what it's about but here's the difference a film is in a fixed time frame a novel is an open time frame. Yeah. You can set a novel down. You can read it over the course of days, weeks, sometimes months. You can only see a film in the time frame that has been allotted. So that if you have a good scene on page 35, which is now landing on page 45, it's no longer a good scene. Mm -hmm. It's 10 pages too late, and, uh, and you've got to do something about that in terms of your timing. Mm -hmm. Whereas some... Uh, Many, I would assume, most authors have a feeling for when people are going to stop reading and pick it up again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <clears throat> the other thing is too, you have the constraint of other people much more present in your li your work life, in your creative life, uh, in film than you do in fiction. Uh, if I do, take three years to write a novel, uh, no one else is participating in that process. I'm alone. I'm like. Um, I like to compare sometimes the making of a novel is like the making of a of a of a large pot out of a lump of clay, mm -hmm. or more than a lump, and and uh, that has a flat base but is is rounded all the way up, and and that's you're 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 controlling every aspect of the shape of the color and and meaning of, of of that pot, and then a filmmaker comes along and and throws the pot on the ground breaks it up into a thousand pieces and then shuffles through the pieces to find the flat ones, just the flat ones. It leaves all the, the round ones out. But the filmmaker also is coming with other people. It starts to uh, reassemble those flat pieces into the equivalent, let's say, of a stained glass window. A two-dimensional, a three-dimensional object becomes a two-dimensional object. Three-dimensional object made by one person becomes um, a two-dimensional object made by a guild of people. You've got to have the guy who does the letting, you've got to have the person who designs the picture, you've got to have the frame around it, and so forth. It's that radically different. I was just asking if, if there are things to avoid uh, regarding the adaptation. I think a too literal loyalty to the source is the main thing to avoid. Well, you can speak to that, Paul, better than well, I Well, I mean... You know, a novel by definition is too too long. I mean, uh, a screenplay is anywhere from 90 to 110 pages, and a novel is going to be four to five times longer than that. So you're just going to go in and pick out little shards of stuff and reassemble them, just like he said. Um, 
And uh, so this idea that you can be faithful to a novel in a limited time frame, um, I don't, you, you know, the idea that you could, you can make a film out of Grapes of Wrath, you know, it's the idea is so, so daunting. Um, you know, uh, I would much, you know, rather make adapted short story than I would a, a long novel. Uh, and some people say that your novels, Russell Banks, are very cinematographic, very visual. Do you, do you agree? You know, it's not I've heard this, yes. Um, it's not intentional, uh, any means, but I do think it may be a result of an aspect of my writing process, um, which um, I, I held to partly on principle and partly by accident um, from the beginning, which is that, um, first of all, I really want to be able to see what I'm writing. Um, Joseph Conrad said, uh, he said, above all else, I want my reader to see. And he meant it in a literal sense, not to understand. That he meant to see, literally visualize what was on the page. And I think that the writer, I do anyhow, need to see it before I can say it, in a sense. Or in the saying, see it. And so I think my work is probably easy easier for readers to visualize than much other work. Uh, not, not necessarily better or worse, it's just an aspect of, aspect of the work. Well, here's an interesting question. Uh, so for the past hundred years, novelists have been permeated with images they've learned uh, from the silver screen. And they can't divest themselves of all that imagery. And then you start to read their books, you start to see that imagery coming up. You know, all of a sudden you say, oh, this is like Apocalypse Now. Um, and, but somebody, some academic person should try to make the case of, did novels become more visual after cinema? Uh, Flaubert, Stendhal, all those people, were they, James, were they more or less visual than their film counterparts. I don't know the answer to that, but mm -hmm. you can make that your class paper. <laughs> <laughs> and Mr. Schroeder, when you've, when you've read Affliction, for instance, did you get the images right uh, at the instance you, you've been reading the, the pages? Well, I mean, there's you know, the dominant image in the novel is the burning down of the barn. Uh, you know, which is a very, very cinematic image, you know, uh, which, uh, you know, you, you think of, of Faulkner, the, the, the barn burner in Faulkner. And, uh, uh, and then, of course, the other images is of uh, the cold, just, you know, the white landscape, you know, and these uh, the sort of uh, figures wrapped up in a, in a cold landscape. Uh, so, you know, trying to communicate, but it's almost like they have too much clothes on to communicate. <laughs> but they were in the novel. Yeah. I mean, the novel is, 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 those are the clusters of images that lead up to the, the barn burning, the fire at, at the end, which is also a kind of 
a Viking ship in a way because there's a dead body inside it. Yeah, the the one thing we couldn't afford, uh, the most cinematic thing in the book, was when uh, the truck breaks through the ice and goes into the lake, and then it has to be pulled out. Uh, we ended up shooting on a lake and spinning it out, but the process of breaking through the lake, sinking the truck, was beyond our budgetary abilities. Uh, although I did see on YouTube somebody, I saw that scene on YouTube, somebody actually goes on the lake and their truck goes down. <laughs> so, wow. um, it happens all the time in the North Country. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so sometimes those great visuals, you know, you yeah. you, you can't do them. And, um, and uh, we only had... Uh, one barn, so we had to work the first time, unlike Tarkovsky, who was able to come back six months later, build a new barn. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, in, in the suite hereafter, uh, there's a vehicle that goes through the ice as well. I, don't, I just realized that, gee, I must be a little hung up on sinking, sinking vehicles through ice. Uh, the, the school bus goes down in, in, through ice, but they did that digitally. Yeah. It was and the most expensive part of the whole movie. <laughs> And is it possible to say one word about American Darling? Uh, is this the the novel that is adapted right now? No, I don't know no. if if it. it, it I, I tried. Yes. I worked, uh, with it was Denis supposed Villeneuve. to be adapted by. Yeah, Denis Villeneuve Scorsese. was going to do it. I worked with him. Uh, it got complicated. We both struggled with it. Uh, we, I was writing it and and uh, with him and and for him really and and uh, and then because I, I, I loved his early work quite a lot, and, uh, and he loved the book, so it was a, a comfortable and a good personal relationship as well, and uh, it still is. But, uh, but at some point there, in the middle of the process, um, which was a, it's a very difficult book to adapt, it's a whole first-person narrator by a woman and telling her story to a stranger, and... Um, at some point in there, Denise suddenly was offered uh, the whole cake, and um, and he, this was going to be a very difficult movie to make, uh, dark and 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 um, aggressive, and it was going to be expensive. It was going to have to be shot in Africa, and it's a, and a Liberian civil war in the late uh, 80s and 90s, and um, and so he had to abandon the project. Since then, no one has picked it up. It's it it sits there like half a dozen others of my books, so waiting for somebody brave or foolish enough to try to adapt it to film. So at this time, no one will adapt it, right? Not now. at the moment, no. Uh, before maybe... Unless someone here was interested, yeah. <laughs> we can talk afterwards. <laughs> before the audience uh, can, of course, ask questions, uh -huh. uh, maybe a question about France. Martin Scorsese says that f French uh, uh, cinema is a kind of inspiration for him. Um, is is there anything uh, well, among I mean, the French cinema or among the French culture or the French writers that can be inspiring for you, both of you? Uh, well, for me, you know, because I came to films as an adult and didn't see films until I was an adult, a college student, and what you saw in French cinema, uh, it was these three kind of strains at the same time. Uh, one was the great humanistic tradition of Renoir, who then I got to know in Los Angeles. And he was uh, a very, very seductive man. 
You just sort of, you know, you, you felt the world expanding as you talked to him. And the other is the, the recklessness of the Nouvelle Vague. The, we can do anything. There are no rules for us. Uh, and then, but then, most important for me was uh, Bresson, who um, uh, was that lonely light in the darkness that only you know he could throw the light. And I had a, I had I had an epiphany uh, in March of 1969. I went to a critical screening at Las Feliz in Los Angeles, a pickpocket. I was going to review it. I was reviewing it for the LA Free Press. I subsequently reviewed it for two weeks running. And um, I watched this movie. It's only 75 minutes long. And during this film, I had two thoughts. One was there is a bridge between my profane present. I was a film student at UCLA. And my sacred past, I had come from seminary. And it's a bridge of style, not a bridge of content. There is such a thing as a transcendental style. It hit me. And then two years later, I wrote a book on that subject. The other thing that hit me was I didn't think there was any place for me in filmmaking. I was a, a film critic. I was a very serious film critic, a protege of Pauline Kael's. You know, we will tell you when you make a good movie. That was sort of my attitude toward <laughs> filmmakers. And... Um, and I was living with a group of students that uh, were UCLA filmmakers, and they were shooting a, a biker film for Corbin. And I just thought this was so declassy, de and uh, there would be no place for me to work in such a debased industry. And then I saw this film, and I said, wait a second. He writes in his journal, and he goes out and he steals something, writes in his journal, goes and talks to his neighbor, writes in his journal, the police come and visit him. I said, I could make a movie like that. <laughs> and three years later, I wrote Taxi Driver, mm -hmm. which is that movie. Mm -hmm. And then 50 years later, those two threads, one which sprouted the academic transcendental style, and the other one which sprouted the anarchic Taxi Driver, finally meet you know, in this film. Uh, came out last year when I first performed. So, uh, it, you know, in that 75 minutes at the Los Feliz Theater, um, I, my, my life was decided. Then I went to France to interview Bresson, and, um, and, whack, and he, I was writing him, and he would not consent to an interview. And uh, finally, his wife wrote me and said, I've told him that he has to do it. And so I went, I was going, I was going on route to Cannes where Taxi Driver was being shown, and I interviewed him. It was in film comedy, a completely wacky interview. I asked some questions, he gave some answers. They did not line up at all. <laughs> but what I remember is the last line of the interview was, he says to me, do you think your film will win the big prize? Meaning the Palme d'Or. And I said, yes. And it was my first script. Um, and it went to the Palme d'Or. I mean, the arrogance, the hubris of just being that young. <laughs> <laughs> but the French are never arrogant. <laughs> no, 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 no. 
And according to you, Russell Banks, I know that uh, reg regularly you come to France to, and you have discussion with uh, writers, French writers. Writers, and, and yeah, and various and artists of various types, I know. Well, I, uh, I've been very fortunate that uh, the French uh, seem to have a special affection for my work. And, and I've also been fortunate because I have a great French publisher and translator. I mean, you're in the hands of a translator and publisher when you travel out of your own language and 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 Actusud and Pierre Furlan has been my translator for 25 30 years now and um, so I all credit to them um, but it also is a peculiarity I think of the French um, that they have such a, a an affection for for my my work which I think of as kind of ur American in many ways and and um, very much rooted in in the tradition um, of American realism um, and 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 in American mode of storytelling uh, rather than the French mode of, of, of storytelling it's, it's rather different um, it's not theoretically driven it's uh, not autobiographically based um, and and uh, these are uncharacteristic uh, in the, in the canon the French canon and uh, aspects so it, it has surprised them, but I must say it certainly has pleased me because uh, I, I love um, I love going over. I have many dear friends there, and I'm, I love eating French food and drinking French wine and um, and selling books. <laughs> so it's it's always been a pleasurable experience for me. But th to go back to the, the question Paul was was answering too, because there, there is a film, a French film, that has had an impact on me that's uh, similar. Um, to uh, Bresson, uh, which, which was uh, 400 Blows, which we've been screening here and talking about, and I wrote a little essay about here. And um, it's one of those things that happened, I was probably a few years younger than you, it was 1959, I, I was 19 years old, and I was living in Boston as a kind of wannabe poet, writer, but mainly just a loser, a dropout, a beatnik, um, Trying to uh, get by uh, with petty crimes and uh, and 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 not much else, and um, and I had no experience in no uh, of films other than the conventional American films of the late fifties, middle late fifties, the ones that got to the screens in small town America, and um, and a friend uh, directed me to the Exeter Theater in in, in Boston where they were screening Four Hundred Blows. And I walked in and saw that film, and within a, about five minutes or so, I thought, oh, this black and white movie set in Paris in the 50s about a French kid is really about me. There's a subjectivity to that film, and I, I recently saw it again uh, after not having seen it for many, many, many years. And, uh, and it's still as mysterious to me now as it was then. How I was allowed to enter into the subjective experience of this boy who on the surface of things was so different from me, an urban kid, yes, lower middle class as I was, but other than that, um, we had nothing in common. And, and yet something about that film has a quality that I had up to that point only seen in fiction. In, in um, novels that would draw you into the subjective inner experience simply by describing behavior. And, uh, and, and that film does that, did that for me. And I think I, over the years, as I became then much more enthusiastic and, and a, uh, um, a visitor to French films, 
I think it probably did have a, a, um, a quality that I learned from as a fiction writer. Mm. Um, and um, the correspondence, for instance, to me, uh, in time, um, and just to stay with 400 blows, where, where it's, it's quick cutting and then long shots, and quick cutting and long shots correspond to my experience of time. And that kind of pacing is very useful for a novelist to have, to, to adhere to in a way. Find a pacing that isn't necessarily dictated by the number of pages, but rather um, by the subjective felt experience of time. And I began to realize, oh, wait a minute, there's a quality of the mimesis of time is something that's very central to, to novels. It imitates the flow of time such that and this experience, I experienced this with the, with the film too. Um, with a novel, unlike a short story, about 75 pages into it, you forget the beginning, just as in the flow of time. Um, you don't remember the first part of your life. <laughs> and and uh, the point is to forget it. It's, it's a river that flows. Um, and, and, uh, and those films managed, just through that kind of alternating pacing, to, to acquire that, uh, that, that verisimilitude, really, to, to our felt experience of time. A river that flows. Yeah. <laughs> Is there any question? Uh, for Paul, have you read any of the novelizations of your scripts? And is there a dream novel that you'd still like to adapt? There was a, uh, a tendency in the 70s to have original scripts novelized. Um, and I wanted no part of this myself. And uh, my brother did, well, it was easy money, you know. I, my brother did what it, and uh, another writer did one of Taxi Driver who he, he gave an interview shortly thereafter saying how much better his novelization was than my script. Um, but I you know happily that trend has died. And it's a really bastardized way to you know, stick a few coins in your pocket, but nothing else good came of it. Um, but you know, it begs the, the larger question. Russell and I were talking earlier, there was a period, which both he and I remember, where serious books got made into serious movies on a regular basis. And two, three times a month you would see a serious movie in, in the movie screens. Now, you know, if you see two, three a year, that's about what we're down to. And even the TV long form tends not to address the serious films. You know, uh, long form would be ideal for crime and punishment, and they have done it in mm. Russia, but they you know, aren't going to do it here. Um, and uh, so that Jean Le Carré and, and uh, 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 Gone Girl, you know, they get the long form, but they're just pop literature. Uh, so we have, not only has the novel more or less died, but the literary adaption of the novel has kind of died with it. And, uh, and uh, you know, there was a, a period there where, you know, the, the 
the big book, you know, had to be, uh, you know, whoever wrote it, you know, whether it was uh, Joseph Heller or, or Ernest Hemingway, you wanted to see that movie on the screen. Mm. And, uh, yeah. what, what happened? Well, what happened, I think, in many cases, was that, that um, the adaptations of serious work weren't serious themselves. I mean, you look at Beloved, for instance, um, and, and any number of others you could name uh, that are serious books, but when adapted, turned into uh, potboiler movies. Do you have any title in, in mind? Well, I was thinking of Beloved in, yeah. in particular, yeah. Mm -hmm. Tony Morrison's, no, yeah. no yeah. But. Yeah, but I mean, even those um, those Faulkner things mm. or the Flannery O'Connor things, mm. um, there's a seriousness in there that's mm. gone. Mm. Uh, even when they turn, uh, what's the one with Newman and uh, Long Hot Summer, whatever, what's mm -hmm. it called? Mm -hmm. What? Long Hot Summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean... Underneath there, there's fog or somewhere. <laughs> yeah. um, but even those don't get made. Mm. Uh, don't you think that has more to do with the economics of film than with the culture itself? I mean, I, every time, Paul and I usually get together once a year in the summertime for a nice long weekend. And, 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 and one of Paul's, it seems, compulsions uh, when he comes to visit me is to tell me how the novel is dead. <laughs> well, I mean, now, take, your, take your friend Bill Kennedy, Ironweed. Yeah. Would Ironweed be made today into a film? Highly unlikely. I can't imagine it. You're right. I understand that. But that's something about you're talking about film, not about the novel, not about fiction. Because I think serious fiction is still continuing to be written and published, sometimes with great difficulty and, yeah. and, uh, well, and well, so on. Part of the economic engine of those. Films from all those books from the fifties, sixties, seventies, when they were always trying to sell them to the movies, right. and then you had agents who specialized in getting the copies first, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, that seems to have dried up. I don't know. I don't think so. Actually, I, I, um, uh, there are all these movie deals that are made before the book is even published. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that there is there. I just think it's in the nature of movie making today that it, uh, nuance, complexity, um, conflicted uh, moralities. Um, these are there's not much room for that in, in in film today. Whereas novels thrive on it. That's what they're about. Well, there's certainly uh, not room in big budget films anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean. You know, one of the foundational articles of French cinema is by Alexander Ostruck in 48, where he wrote about the camera stilo, the idea that there could be an auteur and a camera could be a pen. Now, that really wasn't possible then. It is possible now. Anybody can make a film. Anybody. Yeah. You have a camera stilo in your pocket already. Yeah. Uh, that's the good news. And so... Uh, there's a bounty of very, very interesting films being made now. Uh, a, a tsunami of them. They're all very, very low budget. But voices we've never heard from before. Um, cultures we've never heard from. Everybody's making a film. That's the good news. Yeah. The bad news is nobody's making a living. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, so it is now possible to make a film for $10,000. And it's also possible to lose $10,000 making that same film. Yeah. Whereas in the past, if you made a film, you got paid yeah. uh, because that was the nature of film economics. Right. 
Today, filmmakers are now like poets and painters and musicians. You can work for nothing, mm -hmm. and many of them do. Mm -hmm. we, have other, we have other questions. Uh, hi. So uh, this question is for both Paul and uh, Russell. Um, I just found out two hours ago that there's actually a theater adaptation of Crime and Punishment that is 80 minutes long, which is very like crazy to me because I don't know how you'd be able to tell that story in 80 minutes. So it's probably not good then. Um, wait, but wait, wait, what story? Crime, what, crime and punishment. Oh. Yeah, like legit published one. But anyways, I'm just wondering, like, so in relation to like the medium of theater, if someone were to offer uh, a theater adaptation of either of your stories, would you say yes, uh, or do you think would that even be possible? Uh, they have, and I have said no. Cool. <laughs> what? Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, the taxi driver is the main example. People keep wanting to do it. You know, leave the film alone. You know, it has had a wonderful life. Don't fuck with it. <laughs> Just let it be. You know, don't try to do it again. And uh, you know, we got lucky the first time and let it be. Uh, and uh, so. Uh, yeah, but sometimes, you know, money gets involved. Um, they want to do a, they, they want to do a TV series on American Gigolo, oh. which I just thought was a dreadful idea. Uh, and I still think it's a dreadful idea. I don't, I don't think it will ever, ever see the light of day. So I took $50,000 because I was like, this is never going to get made. I better take the money. <laughs> um, but they only paid me on the condition that I would not be involved. <laughs> because they approached me and said, you know, we want to do American Jiggle as a TV series. I said, that's a, that's a terrible, terrible idea. Times have changed. Those times are gone now. We're in the internet age. We're in the, you know, in the, uh, you know, the, 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 what do they call those parties that for women give for themselves? There's a Brit term for it. Me too? What? No. No. Sorry, like, sorry. Like, uh, 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 it's like the female equivalent of a bachelor party. Hen party. Oh. Okay, we're in the age of hen parties now. So that's a, kind of a post-American yeah, gigolo yeah, era. <laughs> and so, and so after I tried to convince them that it was a bad idea, they said that uh, that I couldn't be involved. <laughs> But what would you do, and it's a question for both of you, if Netflix come and offer you a, an amount of dollars and you can do what you, what you want, what would you do? And, and they could do what they wanted with it? I mean, would I sign it off? No, I, no, I haven't. Uh, I've always uh, restrained myself from, from just signing it off. Uh, I, I, I so enjoyed working with filmmakers over the years. Um, because they have themselves been artists and, and respectful of the essential nature of the material. And their work has been really interesting. Their work as filmmakers to me was Adam McGoyan or Paul. Or, uh, I worked with uh, Francis Coppler on a project for a while. I've worked with Denis Villeneuve and, and other, and, and Raoul Peck, um, and now Bertrand Tavernier. I've been very lucky, but I've also been very choosy. And I haven't just sold the rights to uh, adapt my work uh, without um, being respectful of, uh, without having admiration and respect for the person who is going to make that film. So I wouldn't just sell it to a company. 
like Netflix, uh, where then they would be in control of who was going to make that film. Also, you know, I don't think you should make a film for too much money. Uh, like this film, First Reformed, one of the reasons it took me so long to make it is the economics weren't right. So if I had tried to make that film 20, 30 years ago, it would have been, uh, would have lost a lot of money. You know, we made it in 20 days two years ago. Back then it would take 45 days. So it would cost twice as much. Uh, and the economics weren't right. And, you know, I, if you make a very specialized film and you make it for too much money, it doesn't work because you got, you feel the obligation of having taken too much money and having spent too much money and you start making compromises when you're not even aware you're making compromises. So that, uh, uh, so, you know, when I finally wrote that script, I felt free to write it because I could say to someone, this is a responsible financial investment. This is going to cost $3 million. I'm going to get Ethan to do it. You're going to get your money back. And, of course, I used to say that in the past, but I was lying. <laughs> but this time I could say it and actually tell the truth. <laughs> Some more questions? Yes, sir? Thank you. Uh, just curious, when you both are adapting novels, um, when do you read the novel once and then set it aside while you're writing it, or do you will you consistently go back while you're writing it and reference it, almost like have it with you? Just well, curious I mean, on your I, thoughts I'll on tell you what I do with it. I adopted the Mosquito Coast, and the first thing you, know, well, you, you read the book once, <clears throat> you underline a few things, but mostly you're just reading it. And then you get out the legal pad and you write down every single thing that happens. One, two, three. Now, in a book like Mosquito Coast, a lot of things happen. In, uh, Last Temptation of Christ, many things happen. And you fill up pages of these. So that uh, there were probably around 350 things happened in Last Temptation of Christ. In a movie, 40 to 50 things happen. So now you, now you have some kind of dimension of what you're dealing with. <clears throat> and then so you start making check marks. Uh, I'm going to talk about this quite literally. So you have different themes. You know, the theme uh, of, uh, uh, of sexuality or the theme of God's voice, whatever it is, uh, the theme of American entrepreneurship. And you start going behind each scene and start checking, you know, which scenes have what things in them, comic relief, action, you know, um, uh, male-female uh, romance or, or, or conflict. And now you have maybe several hundred scenes with all little check marks behind them. And now you start looking at which scenes have the most check marks. And I said, well, these are all the scenes, you know, well, let me just take out all those scenes. How many are there? So, well, maybe 35, 40, okay. Let me just put them in a row. And now, let me look at that and say, how much of the other stuff do I have to fit in here? Because one of the secrets uh, for me of creation is how to be additive rather than to be subtractive. 
how do you, the, the mind is open when it has freedom to move. The mind hunkers down when it's being restricted. So if you have a 150 page script, there has to be a 100 page script. You're in the wrong mindset. If you have a 75 page script, that has to be a 90 page script, you're in great. So the shorter you can start, then put yourself in the additive mindset. The more freedom you're gonna have. It's the same thing when you edit a film. At some point, say to the editor, let's cut let's count out every scene that, except the ones that work. How, how long is the movie? It's about 45 minutes long. Okay, let's screen that, 45 minutes, and then figure out how much of the other stuff we have to put in. And once you are thinking of adding, rather than subtracting, you find yourself much more originally uh, stimulated. And so in some way, when you're tackling a novel, you're trying to get it down to the point where an additive process can lift it up again. So, because if you only think of subtracting, it's a, you're diminishing the novel, you're diminishing yourself, everything is becoming shorter, and, and um, that's no way to uh, be free. This is, this is why working with a short story form was, was uh, so much more grass, uh, gratifying for me uh, than, than adapting a novel. I don't know why more short stories aren't, aren't adapted to film, because it does force you to, into that additive mode very quickly, and, um, and you have room to keep on expanding. And backstory, new characters, a minor character becomes major, and so forth. You can do so much more. Yes? Uh, have you ever, while, while adapting, have you ever run into a situation where you pick up these themes within this novel and the author doesn't agree with you? Compose. Well, I mean, the author's taking money. <laughs> um, and, you know, and unless he is unexperienced or pesky, he sort of knows what that means. You know, go away. <laughs> and um, uh, and so, uh, you know, a, a, an author should only be in the stew when when it's good for the stew. Uh, I, I personally don't think a writer should be on set. Um, you know, I think if you haven't done your job at the end of rehearsals. There's something wrong with you as a writer because you've got to hand that football off and these people are going to play with it. And if they're still shooting this movie saying, what would he say here? What would he do here? You haven't done your job. And uh, so in the same way, I think the novelist has done his job when he sits down and talks with you and gives you his opinion. He's done his job. And whether or not he agrees with you or not, you know, that's your call. Do you go on the shootings? I, I the have, sets? yes, I have, yes. Uh, but uh, again, it goes back to what I was saying to an earlier question about being sure that the people I'm working with I have respect and admiration for. And, and that creates a friendship relationship, kind of relationship, a, tr a relationship of trust, mm -hmm. which Paul is, is bypassing, uh, describing the absence of trust in a way. <laughs> and and if, that, if the relationship is one of trust, uh, as I did with Paul and as I did with Egoyen and so on, uh, with Tavernier, then um, I think that um, you feel like you're able to be a participant. I, I remember, Paul, you, you sent me every draft of the script as you went through it. You, 
I was in the editing room with you. You showed me early screenings, and we went over them and sat there and talked about it together. I mean, you, you invited me into the process in a way. Um, had I known you felt about it the way you just described, I probably I don't know. <laughs> would have mistrusted it. But yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we were supposed to have a one-hour discussion. So if there is no more questions, I'm sorry to interrupt and maybe to have one final word of you, Russell Bung, since you're still the ambassador of the festival. <laughs> well, in, my the other, in my remarks the other night, uh, I, I rejected the, the, uh, the designation as ambassador and, and, uh, and, and substituted for it uh, uh, honored guests. And I have felt like an honored guest. And I, I'm very grateful to, to you all for, for that. Uh, it's been great. And I also want to uh, personally thank Paul for, uh, for stepping in uh, for Bertrand here today. It's, uh, he's, uh, he's been on a whirlwind year and a half tour. And uh, we were lucky he was in town and, and had enough energy left to <laughs> show up here this afternoon. Thank you, Paul Schroeder. Thank you, Russell Banks. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.